Okay, so let's continue on. We've got Jeffersonian democracy. This is going to run around 1800 to 1824. Uh, Jefferson was a democratic Republican. So we get President Thomas Jefferson and the Revolution of 1800, which is what it was called. So this was a uh, unprecedented, democratic, peaceful trans transition or transfer of power. So his inaugural speech uh, had to do with we are all Republicans, we are all Federalists. So basically he sought to bring in the moderate Federalist into these, uh, these broad Republican coalitions. Now this is going to exclude Hamilton and his, his high Federalists because they were a little too extreme for, for Thomas Jefferson's liking. Uh, he's going to vow to maintain Washington's policy of non-entangling alliances because Washington basically said that you didn't need to have these long-term alliances because they weren't good for the, uh, the country. This is going to be the first party overturn in United States history, which, I mean, granted, this is only our third president, so it's not really a, a grand thing, especially since... Washington didn't have a party, and then the next president was a Federalist, and then you get to Thomas Jefferson, who was a, a, a Democratic-Republican or an anti-Federalist, you know, same thing. But there is going to be some significance. This is basically demonstrating the efficacy of a two-party system, which you have a lot of people that look at it today and say a two-party system is not necessarily the best idea. That maybe we should be a three or four party system. Uh, Jefferson is going to surprisingly keep a lot of Hamilton's financial plans intact, even though he did uh, well, I mean, he didn't like Hamilton for one, and he's also going to have a lot of not nice things to say about Hamilton's policy, so he disagreed with him a, a lot. Uh, Jefferson is a president, though. He's going to have a more moderate tone uh, as far as the way he's going to do legislation and policy than when he opposed Hamilton back in the 1790s. He's hoping to heal this political rift between both of the parties. So as president, he doesn't really have the luxury of being an ideologue because he's now responsible for the entire country. So he's going to retain most of the government uh, servants from the Federalist administration as well. And he's going to keep the Hamiltonian system except the excise taxes. He wasn't really on that. So he's going to maintain the Bank of the United States. He's going to retain the tariffs. And he's not going to tamper with the Federalist programs for funding things like the, the national debt and this assumption of the state debts. He is going to reverse some of the policies, some of the Federalist policies, though. He's going to pardon the 10 Republican editors that were serving sentences under those sedition laws, where if you said something against, like, a governor or president um, that could be considered, you know, like, slanderous, which it wasn't really slanderous. It was just more of a, a critique kind of thing. Anyway, under the sedition law, they could be taken to jail they were but jefferson is going to pardon them and the government is also going to return most of the fines that people received under the sedition acts as well because the sedition acts pretty much ended when he took over uh, congress is going to enact a new naturalization law in 1802 that's going to bring back the five-year requirement for citizenship instead of what it was pushed up to 
Uh, the Alien Sedition Acts, they, like I said, they expired in 1801, but there's going to be parts of those laws that were, that were going to still be in effect, and Jefferson is going to remove those. He's also going to persuade Congress to repeal those excise taxes, because remember I said he did not want to keep them. He's going to succeed in, in substantially reducing the national debt, and he's also going to balance the budget by cutting government spending, which is great. Especially, in fact, that the debt fell from $80 million to $57 million, you know, and that's a huge difference anyway. But this is also going to include the Louisiana Purchase. So we spent all that money, and yet he was still able to reduce the debt, and again, by cutting government spending, because he believed that the national debt was a curse. Hamilton believed it was a blessing that would bring these states together, because now the national government is paying all the states' taxes and whatnot. Or not, yeah, taxes and debts and blah, blah, blah. He's going to reduce uh, Hamilton's idea of a standing army, but he's going to keep the, the, the need for a stronger navy because at the time, there wasn't really anybody that we were fighting against that we would need an army. Everyone was across, you know, any kind of threat was really across the sea. Uh, some of the Jeffersonians are going to fear the... Army was a high Federalist center of power and could become a threat to the government in the future. So that's why they got rid of that standing army. Now, he's going to end the gra- the graduated property tax, too. And these are also imposed by the high Federalists back in 1798. He's going to emphasize state rights because, remember, he still is an anti-Federalist. And he's going to encourage the development of an agrarian nation because he's from Virginia. That's what they had. Now, the 12th Amendment is going to come about in his under his tenure. 1804 this part the purpose of this was to remedy the issue of the tie votes between presidential candidates from the same party like the issue that we had between jefferson and burke and there was a provision for it and the electors had to specify that they were voting for one presidential and one vice presidential candidate so this is when you get the president and vice president on the same ballot all right so john marshall there's going to be this judicial nationalism. So you're going to have the Judiciary Act of 1801. And this is going to be one of the last important laws that's going to be passed by the outgoing Federalist Congress. Now, the Federalists are going to create 16 new judgeships and some other judicial offices. Adams is going to continue on his last day in office signing commissions of the Federalist Midnight Judges because he wanted to stack it with the Federalists because... Jefferson was an anti-federalist or a Democratic Republican, so he wanted to have his people in office when he left. So the Jeffersonians are going to charge the Federalists with the packing of the judicial branch, and the act was repealed by the newly elected Republican Congress in 1802. So John Marshall himself, he's going to be appointed as the Chief Justice during the last days of Adams' term. And this is going to be or he is going to be the most important chief justice in the United States history, and he's going to serve for 34 years. He's going to maintain Federalist principles in his decisions even after the Federalist Party was dead. So this is going to be after 1816. Now, his decision is going to greatly increase the power of the federal government over the states. The court could invalidate state law, and this has to do with Fletcher v. Peck in 1809. The court is going to reject the compact theory of government that positioned or that posited, sorry, that states could nullify federal laws, and that's Martin v. Hunter's Lessee. That's L-E-S-S-E-E, and this is going to be 1816. 
And the court could overturn a state Supreme Court decision, and that's Cohen's versus Virginia, 1821, and states could not interfere with the property rights of individuals or groups that had been allocated by contract, and that's Dartmouth v. Woodward in 1819. He's also going to examine cases from a Federalist philosophy, and he's going to find legal legal precedents to support his Hamiltonian views. Uh, the Jeffersonian attempts to balance this court with Republicans is going to fail to diminish Marshall's influence because, I mean, the dude had power. He had a lot of sway. Uh, Republicans came to accept the Federalist idea of a strong central government, which is what we have today. So Marbury v. Madison, and this is going to be in 1803, and this is... Probably the most important Supreme Court decision in our history. You had the midnight judge, uh, William Marbury. He is going to sue for the delivery of, of his commission that was being held up by the new Secretary of State, James Madison, because Madison was ordered by Jefferson to withhold the past president, Adams, appointments under the Judiciary Act of 1801. So this is really where we get this judicial review, because Marshall is going to rule that part of the Judiciary Act of 1789 which Marbury had based his appeal, was unconstitutional by giving the court the right to enforce appointments. Marshall gave the Supreme Court power to rule a law by Congress unconstitutional. So this is going to contrast with the Kentucky resolutions where Jefferson claimed states had that right. That's that compact theory that, you know, told you got overturned. And the power of the Supreme Court was greatly enhanced through this, <clears throat> excuse me, through this judicial review. Then we have the impeachment of Samuel Chase. The Jeffersonians were outraged that the judicial review increased the power of the Federalist-dominated Supreme Court, obviously because it's, you know, opposite political, political sides. The Jefferson, the Jefferson, sorry about that, Jefferson supported congressional Republicans in their desire to remove the Federalist Justice Samuel Chase. He was the Supreme Court associate justice. So in early 1804, there's going to be impeachment charges that are going to go against Chase, and they're going to be voted on by the House. Now, the Senate is going to fail to convict Chase in early 1805, but the significance is this, the significance of this was that no further attempts occurred to reshape the court by impeachment. So this is going to reassure the independence of the judiciary and the separation of powers in government. Then you have McClellan uh, versus Maryland, and that's M-C-C-U-L-L-O-C-H. This is going to be in 1819. So the issue was that Maryland tried to destroy its branch of the National Bank by taxing its notes or its money. Marshall declared the National Bank constitutional, invoking Hamilton's doctrine of implied laws. So that's the elastic clause of the Constitution or the necessary and proper clause. So if it was necessary and proper for a branch of the government to do their job, then this is an implied power. This is something they can do. It's kind of a, a loose construction. All right, so they argue that the Constitution derived from the consent of the people, and this means that they permitted the government to act for their benefit. So it's going to deny Maryland the right to tax the bank. Gibbons v. Ogden in 1824, also known as the Steamboat Case, and the significance of this was was that only Congress had the right to regulate interstate commerce. So the issue was that New York tried to grant a monopoly of river commerce between New York and New Jersey to a private company, and this was owned by Ogden. Now, Gibbons 
had a congressional approval to conduct business on the same river. So you've got two contracts, but one of them is state, one of them is federal. Now, the decision was that the court ruled interstate rivers were regulated by Congress, not individual states. So obviously, uh, Ogden lost. Daniel Webster. Now, he, was an important, he had important influence in Marshall's decision. He also argued Federalist and Nationalist views before the, co- before the court, and he is going to ghostwrite some of Marshall's opinions. So then we move to the, the Louisiana Purchase. This was in 1800. Well, in 1800, I should say. This is where it all started. Uh, Napoleon is going to persuade Spain to cede the Louisiana region to France because it was kind of part of a contract like, deal treaty thing. Anyway, so France in 1802 is going to withdraw the U.S. right of deposit at New Orleans. And this, is, this was all guaranteed under the... Uh, Pinckney Treaty of 1795. Napoleon is going to pose a military threat to the United States there. So Jefferson wants to buy New Orleans and as much land as possible to the east for $10 million. The main point, though, was to buy New Orleans because this was a major port. Now, if the negotiations failed, the United States would forge an alliance with Britain, which is not something that France wanted. Napoleon decided to sell all of Louisiana and just get rid of his whole dream of an American empire. Part of this had to do with the Haitian Rebellion because Napoleon had failed to reconquer the island of Santo Domingo after there was a slave rebellion that began in 1790. So it kind of lost some of the the glimmer to be over there in the States or in America. Now, Toussaint Louverture, and that's T-O-U-S-S-A-I-N-T, L apostrophe O U V E R T U R E. He is going to be the man who leads the ex slaves in a failed bloody revolt. The rebellion was inspired by the American Revolution, and the ideals embodied in the Declaration of Independence. So the American colonists had been the first society in the Western Hemisphere to win its independence from a European empire. The Haitian Rebellion represented the second successful revolution, although independence would occur several years later but nonetheless they still got their independence there's going to be thousands of french troops that are going to fight in this they're going to die of malaria during the struggle you know you're you're close to the equator you've got lots of mosquitoes lots of humidity napoleon is going to use the revenues from the sale of louisiana to pay for his european conquests and he didn't want to be distracted by the united states as an enemy in north america so it was just better for him now Livingston, Robert Livingston, is going to be the man that's who, who's going to initially negotiate for New Orleans. The entire Louisiana Territory is actually purchased for about $15 million, which, can't, which comes out to about $0.03 cents an acre. And even in that time, it was a steal. Sorry, i got to take a drink break. So Jefferson is going to accept the treaty, and this is going to be somewhat reluctantly because it's not within his powers to actually accept a treaty because that's not what a president can do. This is a this is a this is where the balance of powers comes in, and it doesn't tip in his scales. So he's a strict constructionist so he's going to believe that the constitution did not authorize the president to negotiate these treaties that would incorporate 
these huge new lands into the United States. So he's going to secretly propose an amendment to the Constitution to purchase land. And the advisors are going to urge Jefferson to act now before Napoleon changes his mind because, like I said, this is a steal. And we didn't want to be fighting with the French anyway. Uh, he's going to submit the treaty to Senate while privately admitting the purchase was unconstitutional. Uh, the Senate is going to promptly ratify the treaty, and the westward-looking Americans are going to enthusiastically support the purchase because they wanted to continue west. That's a whole idea of manifest destiny. The Federalists, however, are going to oppose the Louisiana Purchase. Uh, they argued for strict construction, claiming the president not, did not have the power to purchase Louisiana. And ironically, they claim Louisiana would cost too much and cause the U.S. debt to soar, even though they cut the cost, you know, um, Jefferson end up dropping the debt by millions of dollars. The, and these, this is the outside. This is the, their outside reasoning. Their actual reason is they were worried that the new Western lands would actually be, re, be loyal to the Republicans and not the Federalists. So Louisiana is... The most important land purchase in our history because this doubled the size of the U.S. It received the western half of the richest river valley in the world. It guaranteed an unfettered access to the Mississippi River and to the Gulf of Mexico, specifically including New Orleans. And it's going to pave the way for westward expansion. It's going to accelerate the rise of the U.S. as an economic and political power. By 1890, however, all the remaining Native Americans in the West would be killed or forced into reservations, so that just sucks. Uh, John Jacob Astor is going to form the American Fur Company in 1808 to tap the newly purchased territory. And this is, this is going to eventually result in the U.S. claim to Oregon, which will lead us later into the Oregon Trail. You died of dysentery. This is going to end uh, European expansion in North America for the most part, and it's going to largely end the European threat on the U.S. western frontier. This is also going to avoid what would have been a possible war with France and a entangling alliance, which Jefferson said he did not want to enter into, with Britain. This is also going to boost American nationalism. So Federalists are a sectional part or sectional party in New England, and the West was more loyal to the Union as Jefferson was seen as a hero. Then we get the Lewis and Clark Expedition. This is going to be from 1804 to 1806, so they spend two years out in the Louisiana wilderness. Uh, Jefferson was more interested in finding an all-water route to the Pacific, so Meriwether Lewis and William Clark were appointed by Jefferson to explore the region. Their trail extended from the Missouri River through the Rockies and along the Columbia River to the Pacific Ocean. Sacagawea, a Shoshone, oh sorry, uh, a Shoshone woman, is going to become a scout and a translator when the expedition reached Bismarck, South Dakota, for the winter. And this is going to be crucial to their success. Without her, they would have been lost. For actually a few reasons, one of them is she ended up. Um, coming across a relative who actually helped them negotiate with some of the other tribes. All right, so the expedition is going to bolster the U.S. claim to Oregon, and it's going to further open the West to the Ameri the Amerindian trade and exploration. The reports by Lewis and Clark are going to provide an extensive level of information about the flora and the fauna, or the animals and the plants, 
plants, animals. Sorry, I got out of the wrong order because flora is plants and fauna is animals. Anyway, of the territory. Now, their published reports are going to spark interest in westward expansion. So you could kind of blame them a little bit. Anyway. Jefferson was disappointed that they never found an all-water route because the Northwest Passage does not exist. All right, so the Embargo Act of 1807. This is the having to do with the Napoleonic Wars. So the Napoleonic Wars are going to lead to the harassment of the U.S. shipping. Britain is going to issue the Order in Council in 1806, meaning that any ships that didn't stop in Britain prior to entering the continent would be confiscated. Napoleon... So the, so the French, they're going to declare that any neutral ship entering British port or submitting to a British warship at sea would be confiscated if it attempted to enter the continental port. So it's like, you're, you're kind of just, you're darned if you do and darned if you don't. Anyway, so a lot of the U.S. shippers are going to take chance by continuing trade and earning these large profits and hoping for the best. So then you would have this British impressment. Around 6,000 Americans are going to actually be impressed between 1808 and 1811. A lot of them are going to be killed in the service. So impressment is where they are taking Americans from their ships and forcing them into the British naval service. Britain is going to accuse the U.S. of enticing British, British sailors to desert to U.S. ships. Then you had the Chesapeake Leonard affair. Leonard. Sorry about that. Chesapeake Leopard. My brain took it out. Anyway, this is going to be in 1807. So this is the British commander of the HMS Leopard, not Leonard, demanded the surrender of the four alleged British deserters on the USS Chesapeake. And this is, you know, the American one. So the American captain refused. The Leopard is going to fire at the Chesapeake and there's going to be three dead and 18 wounded. American reaction was the most hostile since the XYZ affair about 10 years earlier. The British Foreign Office admitted its error. Jefferson, nevertheless, used the incidents to incite calls for U.S. action. He's going to forbid any British ships to dock at the American ports. And he's going to order state governors to call up as many as 100,000 militiamen. Then we had the Embargo Act in 1807. And this is going to forbid any exports of... of goods from the U.S. to any destination. So Jefferson believed that a U.S. embargo would force Britain and France to respect its rights. And it represented a loose, constrictionist view of the Constitution. So Congress's power to regulate commerce meant it could also stop the exports. And the act is also going to undermine Jefferson's states' rights philosophy because now he said you can't do it even though it's your state. The Embargo Act was a disaster to the U.S. economy. In 1807, U.S. exports equaled $108 million. In 1808, $22 million. So obviously it just killed our exports. Uh, New England's trade was the most adversely affected. The South and the West saw dramatic declines in the export of cotton, tobacco, and grain, which were their biggest exports. The embargo probably was more damaging to the U.S. than the British and the French threats because the British and the French could still trade, just not with us. Uh, obviously, we're going to get a lot of illegal trade, uh, especially along the Canadian border because they're right there. New England, New England is going to talk about succession, and this is going to be an earlier plot in 1804 by a radical New England Federalists that's going to fail to create a new seven-state republic. Alexander Hamilton helped expose that thought 
that plot, which included Vice President Aaron Burr, and it led to his death in a duel against Burr. So, see, it wasn't just the fact that he kind of got messed over for Vice President. It was also because... Sorry. It's also because he was trying to basically lead a coup against the United States, or the President, anyway. Now, talk of New England succession would again occur in 1814 among a minority of Federalists at the Hartford Convention during the War of 1812. Congress will repeal the act on March 1st, 1809, and this is three days before Jefferson left office. The Non-Intercourse Act of 1809 replaced the Embargo Act. It's going to reopen trade with all nations of the world except France and Britain. And it's going to remain... It remained U.S. policy until the War of 1812. So, three three years. Now, two days before the U.S. declared war on Britain in 1812, Britain suspended the order in council. And the telegraph for a quick communication had not yet been invented. So, it was just behind. The whole thing could have been averted. The Embargo Act inadvertently sparked the Industrial Revolution in America. New England was forced to become self-sufficient once again, so the textile factories are going to start growing drastically. Ironically, Jefferson, a critic of industrialization, may have actually contributed more than Hamilton to its rise in the United States because of, you know, the Embargo Act and all those things. Uh, And then we have Jefferson's legacy. Expansion became a primary goal of Jeffersonians, and agri- you know that whole idea of the agrarian, agrarian empire. And expansion had been a federalist policy, even though success was limited. Uh, there was going to be an orderly expansion in the old Northwest, but not in the South. And the Northwest was not subdued until the Battle of Fallen Timbers in 1794, and that is a battle with the Native Americans. Southern conquests were difficult due to the Spanish presence, and Louisiana Purchase essentially ended European expansion in North America. Now, historically, this is going to be a stunning achievement because no society had ever combined indefinite expansion and supremacy within the hemisphere without building a strong, centralized, European-style state, which we did not have. Now, on the soft side of Jeffersonian expansion, we had an invasion of Canada during the War of 1812, which they basically said, go home. Uh, The hard side of Jeffersonian expansion was we had the removal of of Native Americans. There was an opposition to any free African Americans uh, to migrate westward. And then there was a forced purchase of Florida from Spain during Monroe's presidency. Jeffersonian Contempt for Spain carried over into Manifest Destiny in the 1840s and the conquest of half of Mexico's territory. So we took that. Uh, There's going to be a creation of a democratic, non-aristocratic government. The government that governs least governs best. That whole idea. We're going to lower the national debt. We're going to balance the budget. And we're going to promote states' rights. We're also going to reduce oppressive aspects of the Federalist agenda that we had under Monroe. Um, the people who owned the state didn't government govern it, govern it like they did over in Europe, and Jefferson maintained the two-term presidential tradition. He also retained his faith in democracy and the common people. 
Now, there's going to be a total defeat of the Federalists by 1816. The High Federalists had been moving toward the creation of a European-like aristocracy through uh, intermarriage, a creation of a standing army, which Jefferson got rid of, and government suppression of political opponents, which, you know, that was the Sedition Acts, which, again, Jefferson got rid of. Uh, the most high-ranking army officers were Federalists as well, so you're giving these positions to the people that you like. Uh, Jefferson finally gained a loyal officer's corps in the military by 1807, and this is going to be a great victory for him. Jefferson is going to keep the country out of a damaging European war. So you had the War of 1812. It didn't occur until late, until Madison's first term. So here's a little little memory aid that you can use. You think Jefferson was at the helm, H-E-L-M. So H would be Hamilton's plan kept by Jefferson, except for those excise taxes. Uh, e would be the Embargo Act. L would be Louisiana Purchase. And M would be Marbury versus Madison. So you get judicial, judicial review and you get the uh, Federalist a little bit there. Uh then we move on into President James Madison, and he was at the helm uh -huh, from 1809 to 1817. So we'll start off with him in the War of 1812. Now, Madison was inaugurated in March of 1809. You had the Virginia Dynasty. Madison was third in line of four Virginia presidents between 1789 and 1829, so after Washington and Jefferson before Monroe. Uh, he was also strongly Jeffersonian in his views. Then we have the Warhawks, and they're going to attack Native Americans in the Ohio Valley, and they're going to seek a war against Britain. This is going to be a deeply divided Congress that will meet late in 1811. And at this time, the Republicans were still in control. It's going to differ from past Congresses. You're going to have new, young, and nationalistic leaders from the South and the West that are going to start to emerge here. Uh, men like Henry Clay from Kentucky was elected Speaker of the House, and John Calhoun was elected as a representative of South Carolina. Then we had the Battle of Tippecanoe in 1811. That's T-I-P-P-E-C-A-N-O-E. The Western Warhawks sought to wipe out any of the renewed uh, Native American resistance against white settlers in the Western wilderness. The Shawnee Confederation are who posed the biggest threat. Two Shawnee twin brothers, Tecumseh and the Prophet uh, Tenskatawa. Sorry, I have to think of that about that one. And that's T E C U M S E H and Tenskatawa. Yeah, Tenskatawa. Yeah, I'm saying it right. Sorry. It's T-E-N-S-K-W-A-T-A-W-A. -A -A. Uh, they had organized a confederacy of all of the tribes east of the Mississippi. Now, Tenskatawa was a religious and political leader of the Shawnee, while Tecumseh was the military leader of the Shawnee Confederation and one of its main political leaders. Tecumseh, sorry, was a noted warrior and one of the most gifted organizers of Native Americans in U.S. history. Uh, he believed in fairness between tribes in selling and purchasing land that belonged to all Native Americans. Uh, Americans thought the British were aiding them. 
General W.H. Harrison repelled a surprise Native American attack at Tippecanoe in present-day Indiana in 1811. The significance of this is it essentially ended the Native American threat in the Old Northwest. It further spurred westward expansion, and Native Americans would end up being pushed further west. The Warhawks are also going to seek to conquer Canada. They hope they hope to remove further American American Indian or Native American threats. Sorry, Canada, Canada was seen as vulnerable to these attacks as Britain was preoccupied with Napoleon. The southern expansionists are also going to desire Spanish Florida, which is Britain's ally. And the Warhawks were outraged at British impressment at U.S. sailors and orders in council that prevented the United States agricultural products from reaching Europe. So we pop up with Daniel Webster again. And he's that Federalist from New Hampshire who's going to speak against entry into the war. He argued on behalf of New England manufacturing interests that would suffer from the British blockade. The U.S. declared war on Britain in June of 1812, and representatives from pro-British New England as well as the mid-Atlantic states opposed the war. Now, why did the U.S. fight Britain when France also had assaulted these U.S. ships? Because the Warhawks had pushed Madison toward war. The traditional Republicans, or the Jeffersonians, had uh, partially toward France. And British impressment and arming, uh, there was the British impressment and arming of the the, uh, Native Americans. And you had the Chesapeake Leopard Affair that we talked about earlier. And then there was the lure of conquering Canada. So you had the timber, the fishing, and the fur trade. The New Englanders actually hindered the war effort. They believed the British actions were exaggerated, and they still disliked the French. The New England merchants were still profitable before the war. There's also going to be the opposed acquisition of Canada, which would likely add agrarian states who would likely have supported Jeffersonians. And the New England investors had lent money to these British interests. New England farmers sent huge quantities of supplies and foodstuffs to Canada, helping Britain invade New York. And New England, the uh, New England states, refused to permit their militia to serve outside of their states. Because still, we still have some issues with um, the federal government telling the state government what to do. So... Let's do a little overview of the War of 1812. Now, this is relatively a small war. Around 6,000 Americans were killed or wounded. Mostly Canadians fought Americans, and there's very few British. The U.S. was militarily unprepared for war. Uh, The attack on Canada was a complete failure. Like I said, they basically told us us to go home. Washington, D.C. was burned to the ground, basically, by British forces. Uh, Britain nearly lost territories in New York. Or nearly won, sorry. Britain nearly won territories in New York and New England. Um, But there were some American victories. One of them was having to do with Dolly Madison, who was the First Lady. Uh, She saved some of the important works of art in the White House and fled just before the British arrived. One of the things that she grabbed was the painting of uh, General George Washington. So... Some of our other victories that we actually gained. Uh, The United States Navy outperformed the Royal Navy on the Great Lakes, so yay. 
the British also failed to take Fort McHenry, which protected Baltimore. And this is going to inspire Francis Scott Key to write the Star-Spangled Banner. General Andrew Jackson, who we don't, you know, particularly love, uh, he emerged as a national a national hero. Now, you had the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, where he defeated, he defeated the Creeks, and the Battle of New Orleans, where the United States inflicted a devastating defeat of the British. Even though, technically, the war was already over, but, you know, we didn't have phones, or telegraphs, any of that stuff. So, they continued to fight. Alright, the Treaty of Ghent. Alright, so the war ended in uh, 1814 in a stalemate. So both countries agreed to stop fighting and to restore any of the conquered territories. And there was no mention of pre-war grievances. America gained respect diplomatically and militarily. The Native Americans lost a vast area of the forested land north of the Ohio, Ohio River, though. So they, they, you know, they lost out, even though this was supposed to be a stalemate. But apparently they weren't part of the country. The U.S. industry was stimulated by less dependence on British goods, and this is going to spawn the Industrial Revolution in America. Jackson's victories in the Southwest and New Orleans had to do with, partially with the British strategy. And the British strategy was to take the U.S. Gulf, of, Gulf Coast and New Orleans. The Mississippi Creek Native Americans, known as the Red Sticks, launched a preliminary campaign by attacking Fort Mims, M-I-M-S. And this is going to be near Mobile, Alabama. There, it's going to be 400 Americans killed. General Andrew Jackson is going to retaliate by attacking a Creek village and killing 300 warriors at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend in March of 1814. This is going to be one of the largest Native American massacres in U.S. history. Now, the Battle of New Orleans in January of 1815, Britain is going to launch a, a frontal attack, which is kind of a foolish attack, and Jackson is going to command a 7,000-man force of sailors, regulars, pirates, Frenchmen, free blacks, and militiamen from Louisiana, Kentucky, and, Louisiana, or, sorry, and from Tennessee. Over 2,000 British casualties in half an hour compared to about 70 Americans. Ironically, the battle was unnecessary because, like I said, the Treaty of Ghent had been signed two weeks earlier, but the two armies didn't get word until after the battle. A British victory in the battle likely would have resulted in Britain changing the terms of the treaty to the detriment of the United States. The Battle of New Orleans resulted in a tremendous American, in tremendous American pride and nationalism. Then J and Jackson became the hero of the war and was elected president 13 years later. Uh, most Americans believe the New Orleans campaign had actually won the war. All right, the Hartford Convention. This is going to be attended by Maine, Connecticut, Rhode Island, and partially by New Hampshire and Vermont. Now, the purpose for this was that they discussed their anti-war complaints and sought compensation for losses during the war. This is going to be from 1814 to 1815. Forgot to throw that in at the beginning. Uh, the immediate goal was to secure financial assistance from the federal government due to Britain's blockade of the New England ports. Now, there's going to be a minority of radical delegates that, delegates that are going to urge succession, but were outvoted by moderate federalists. 
the convention recommended amendments to the Constitution. Now, there's going to be a repeal of the three-fifths compromise in order to reduce Southern influence in the House of Representatives. Two-thirds vote for an embargo, admission of Western states to the Union, and a declaration of war. This is also going to limit the term of the president to avoid a Jeffersonian dynasty, and it's going to deny naturalized citizens, who often were Republicans, the right to hold office. The Battle of New Orleans and the Treaty of Ghent made their pleas moot and made the Federalists seem defeatists. Hartford, the Hartford Revolu uh, resolutions were the death, the, the death knell of the Federalist Party, so they're on their way out. In 1816, the Republican James Monroe is going to end up crushing his Federalist opponent, and the exaggerated rumors of treason are going to hurt the Federalist Party. Until 1815, there had been more talk of nullification and succession in New England than any other region, which is where most of your Federalist Party had been housed. And this is going to result in a temporary reduction of sectionalism. <clears throat> All right, Henry Clay. So, Henry Clay's American system. So, you had the Second National Bank. And this was created by Congress in 1816. And there was a lack of national bank during the War of 1812. And this is going to hurt the economy. The local banks are going to spring up all over the country. And the country was flooded by depreciated banknotes that hurt the war effort. This is going to be modeled at the, uh, the second national bank is going to be modeled after the first national bank, but with three and a half times more capital. The Jeffersonians are going to support this new national bank, and they it used the same arguments that Hamilton had used in 1791. The Republicans had become increasingly loose constructionists on the bank issue. Uh, the Federalists are also going to uh, the, the Federalists are going to denounce it as unconstitutional, even though they were the ones who wanted it in the first place. By 1816, the Federalist Party had become marginalized and withered away a short time later that year. So then we have the Tariff of 1816. Now the purpose of this was to protect U.S. manufacturing from British competition. Now, after the war, Britain is going to flood the U.S. with cheap goods, often below cost, to undercut any new U.S. industries, and the United States is going to see this as an attempt to crush the factories. This is going to be the first protective tariff in our history, and it's going to impose roughly a 20 to 25 percent duty on imports. And it's not really high enough to provide effective protection, though, because, like I said, cheap product. It's windy outside. All right, Hamilton's tariffs in the 1790s had been around 10%. Now, start, this is going to start a protective trend in U.S. trade. Sectionalism, sectionalism over the tariff was, was represented by the three great congressional leaders of the era, Calhoun, Webster, and Clay, all three we've already briefly discussed. Calhoun is going to represent Southern views. He's going to oppose the tariff, claiming it enriched New England manufacturers at the South's expense. Webster is going to represent Northern views, opposing the tariff as, a, as shippers in New England feared it would damage their industry, and New England had not yet completely industrialized. Clay is going to see tariffs as a way to develop a strong economic, well, a strong domestic economic market. <clears throat> The eastern trade would flourish under the tariff protection, and the tariff revenues would fund roads and canals in the west, especially in the Ohio Valley. Foodstuffs and raw materials from the south and west would flow into the north and the east. So, we have international improvements, even though this was failed to pass. 
Congress is going to pass the Calhoun's Bonus Bill in 1817, which would give funds to states for internal improvements. Madison is going to veto it, claiming it was unconstitutional, and his successor, James Monroe, also is going to veto the legislation. Jeffersonians opposed direct federal support for uh, interstate internal improvement, and they're going to saw it as a state's rights issue. New England is going to oppose federally built roads and canals, and it's going to fear it would drain away all the population and and create competing states in the West. Now, prior to the Civil War, most internal improvements, except for railroads, are going to be done at the expense of the state and local governments, not the federal. The Erie Erie Canal in New York in 1826 is a good example of this. Uh, this the Erie Canal was actually put in against a lot of the wishes of the people. They thought that would just drain the money, but I believe it was like maybe five years or something. And it had paid for itself. Now today it's not really used for a whole lot of trade or whatever. It's more uh, recreational. Era of Good Feelings. This is going to be from 1817 to 1825. James Monroe is going to be elected in 1816. The death of the Federalist Party resulted after the election. And the Era of the Good Feelings is a term coined by a newspaper writer following Monroe on his 1817 inspection tour of military bases. Now, it's somewhat of of a misnomer. Uh, serious issues are going to divide the nation. You have emerging sectionalism. We're going to have a tariff issue. There's going to be internal improvements. You've got the Bank of the United States, the sale of public land. There will be a panic of 1819. There will be the issue of slavery over in Missouri. And there's going to be a Republican one-party rule that's going to begin developing factions, eventually leading to the second-party system in the 1830s. So, Monroe's presidency is going to oversee two major events, the Panic of 1819 and the Missouri Compromise of 1820. Now, the Panic, this is going to be an economic crash and a depression that's going to hit in 1819. This will be the first financial panic since the Articles of Confederation era in the 1780s. After this, there's going to be panics and depressions that will occur every around every 20 years. So you had 1837, 57, 73, 93, 1907, and then 1929. Now, there's going to be a significant deficit in the balance of trade with Britain, and this is going to mean that the U.S. was drained of any hard money, so your gold and your silver. The second national bank is going to force the wildcat western banks to foreclose on western farms that could not make their payments payments in, in specific. This is going to result in calls for reform and pressure for increased democracy. So your Western farmers are going to view the bank as an evil financial monster, obviously, because they're having their farms and whatnot taken away. This is going to hit the poor classes the worst because they're looking for a more responsive government, but they're not getting it. The new land legislation is going to result in smaller parcels being sold for lower prices, and by the Civil War, Western lands were being given away basically for free. They said if if you'll improve it, you can have it. There's going to be widespread sentiment that's going to exist to end 
the practice of imprisoning debtors. So debtors prison, because it doesn't make sense. Because if you're in prison, how can you pay your debt? Some states are going to pass legislation reducing the debtors prison as well. So the Missouri Compromise of 1820, that Missouri is going to apply for statehood in 1819. And the Talamange Amendment, T-A-L-L-M-A-D-G-A-E, sorry, is going to be passed by the House of Representatives. So no more slaves could be brought into Missouri. And this would mean gradual emancipation of children born to slave parents who were already there. The Southerners viewed the Talamage Amendment as a huge threat to the sectional balance. And uh, Jefferson basically called this the fire bell in the night. Southerners feared for the future of the slave system. They saw the fast increase in the northern population and the economy, and the political balance in the House of Representatives seemed to favor the North. The Senate was still balanced, however, between 11 free to 11 slave states. Missouri was the first state entirely west of the Mississippi made from the Louisiana Territory. The Talmadge Amendment might actually set a precedent for the entire region to be free, which is what their concern was. If Congress could abolish slavery in Missouri, it might try in the southern states. There was going to be a small group of abolitionists in the north that are going to protest. The Senate is going to refuse to pass the amendment, and there's going to be a national crisis that will loom. Obviously, hello, civil war. Henry Clay is going to lead the mediation of the compromise, of the actual Missouri Compromise now. So the provisions were that Congress would admit Missouri as a slave state, and then Maine would be admitted as a free state. So there's a sectional balance of states to keep it at a 12-12 for the next 15 years. Uh, future slavery was prohibited north of the 36, uh, 36 degree, 30 minute line and the southern border of Missouri. The compromise was largely accepted by both sides. The North had an advantage as Spanish territory in the southwest prevented significant southern expansion westward, and the southerners were not too concerned about the lands north of 3630 as climate was not conducive to cash crops for uh, that actually required any kind of slave labor. Now, the legacy of the compromise is going to last 34 years, and it's going to preserve the Union. And this is going to be until the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, where we get bleeding Kansas and all that hubbub. Uh, slavery would become a dominant issue in American politics and a very serious setback to national unity. And the South began to develop a sectional nationalism of its own. It looked to the westward or Western states, who were seeking allies as well. Clay was later criticized unfairly by the Northerners as an appeaser. So foreign policy after the War of 1812. Now, relations with Britain improved. Both countries significantly limited the naval armament on the Great Lakes. Uh, they fixed the American-Canadian uh, border at the 49th parallel from the Lake of the Woods to the Rocky Mountains and agreed to a 10-year joint occupation of the Oregon Territory without surrender of claims. And this is going to be the Convention of 1818. Then you had the Florida Purchase Treaty of 1819, also the Adams-Onis Treaty, A-D-A-M-S-O-N-I-S. The United States already claimed West Florida where settlers arrived in 1810 and Congress ratified the conquest during the War of 1812. Revolutions in state 
sorry, revolutions in South America are going to force Spain to move troops out from Florida. The Native Americans, runaway slaves, and white outcasts are going to pour across the border into the U.S. territory to attack settlers and then retreat south of the border. Monroe is going to order Andrew Jackson to attack the Native Americans and, if necessary, pursue them back into Florida. He was to respect the Spain's the Spanish posts, however. Jackson is going to sweep through the central and eastern Florida during the first Seminole War of 1816 to 1818, and he's going to capture Spanish cities and depose the Spanish governor, obviously disobeying Monroe's orders. Jackson is going to execute two Native American chiefs and two British supporters of Spain. Now, Secretary of State John Quincy Adams, later our president, is going to convince Monroe's cabinet to offer an ultimatum to Spain, control the outlaws of Florida, which Spain was not exactly equipped to do, or cede Florida to the United States. And Spain realized it would actually lose Florida in any case, so it was like, here, fine, we'll negotiate. So you got the Adams-Onis Treaty of 1819. So Spain is going to cede Florida, as well as its claims to Oregon, to the United States, and the United States is going to abandon claims to Texas, which will later become part of Mexico, or Mexico. So the Monroe Doctrine. Now, there's going to be certain European monarchies uh, who, who are going to be concerned about Latin America's democratic revolutions and Europe's emerging democratic movements. They saw democracy as a threat, and they're going to seek to restore newly independent republics to Spanish rule. Americans were alarmed at European hostility to democracy in the Western Hemisphere. Now, Britain is going to seek an alliance with the United States to protect its interest in Latin America, but the United States is going to refuse because they believe that Britain wanted to hamper any United States expansion in the region. Now, the Monroe Doctrine itself, 1823, was written by John Quincy Adams. The president's annual message to Congress to warn, now this one in specific was to warn Europeans. Yeah, the imperial powers could keep existing in the Western Hemisphere, but they could gain no new ones, and they should allow the new Latin American republics to govern themselves. The message was directed largely to Russia, who had designs on the Pacific coast. Americans widely supported it because they, may, they wanted to maintain Washington's tradition of avoided entangling alliances. Latin American countries saw the United States merely protecting its own interest. Immediate impact were the immediate impacts were small. Uh, the U.S. Army and Navy were small and relatively weak, and not until 1845 did Polk revive it and make it more significant. There are. Some long-term effects of it, though, or long-term impacts. The Monroe Doctrine became a cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy during the last half of the 19th century and throughout the 20th century. Now, there's going to be growth of the United States nationalism after the War of 1812. Now, the causes of this, we had these victories in the War of 1812, especially in the Battle of New Orleans. There's going to be the death of the Federalist Party, temporarily, temporarily reducing the sectionalism and the state's rights sentiment. There's going to be a decline of economic and political dependence on Europe. There will be westward expansion and optimism about the future. And then we're going to begin to see ourselves as Americans first and state citizens second instead of the other way around. The new western states are going to enter 
the Union, you're going to get Indiana in 1816, Illinois in 1818 in the North, Mississippi in 1817, and Alabama in 1819 in the South. There's going to be less, they're going to be less interested in states' rights like the South and the East. And they're going to depend heavily on the federal government where they had received most of their land. They're also going to contain a wide diversity of peoples immigrating from the East. Now, the reasons for this for this westward expansion, you had cheap lands in the Ohio Territory that's going to attract thousands of European immigrants. Also, the Native Americans had largely been removed from the Indian, from the Indian, from the Ohio Valley. The land exhausted, there's going to be land exhaustion in older tobacco states. It's going to drive people westward because basically they just drained it of all the nutrients. And there's going to be a depression during the embargo years that's going to spark more migration. And then you have the transportation revolution that's going to improve westward movement. The spirit of westward westward expansion would eventually lead to a full-blown spirit of manifest destiny in the 1840s. That, you know, we've got the God-given right to go west. We. Uh, America's going to see its first pop culture icon, a uh, westerner named Davy Crockett. King of the Wild Frontier. Anyway, he had these legendary hunting and fire, uh, fighting skills. Now, there's going to be nationalism in literature. So, you had Noah Webster. He's going to publish the first American English Dictionary in 1828. McGuffey Readers. This was first published in the 1830s, and it came in use in many of the, na- the nation's primary schools. Now, in addition to teaching reading and grammar, lessons emphasize morality, patriotism, idealism, a strong work ethic, and personal responsibility. Then you had the Knickerbocker Group. They're going to emerge in New York. These are U.S. writers who are starting to emphasize American themes in their work. And this is going to become the first U.S. writers to receive acclaim in Europe. So you had Washington Irving. Uh, His name actually should sound a little familiar to you if you've ever heard of Sleepy Hollow. Because he's who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. They're both from 1820. His historical works included the monumental five-volume biography biography of George Washington, which was published in the 1850s. James Fenmore Cooper, he wrote Last of the Mohicans in 1826. And this is going to dramatize the conflict between the British and the Amerindians during the French and Indian War. William Cullen Bryant is going to be a, uh, he's a romantic poet and the America's leading poet by the 1830s. Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, or Henry Longfellow, he's also a romantic uh, poet. He's going to be the one who wrote Paul Revere's Ride and the Song of Hiawatha. Then we have transcendentalism. This is going to be heavily influenced by romanticism in Europe. It's going to emerge in New England in the 1830s. The whole philosophy behind it is going to be the truth transcends the senses and can't be found by empiricism alone. So every person should possess this inner light that can illuminate the highest truth and put him or her in direct touch with God or the over soul. So it sounds a whole lot like you know, the Quaker religion. This is going to emphasize individualism in the matters of religion as well as social. Ralph Waldo Emerson was one of the greatest transcendentalists, and he developed the oversoul philosophy of an organic universe. He also advocated for self-reliance, self-improvement, optimism, and freedom, and he was a champion of American individualism. Henry David Thoreau was a follower of Emerson's. He was also a poet and a nonconformist. 
Uh, he's going to spend two years in the woods by Walden Pond in Massachusetts, communing with nature while practicing self-culture. So basically he had a utopia of one. There was Walt Whitman. He was seen as America's poet. John J. Audubon, which was a naturalist who published all these works about the American birds. And there's going to be the nationalism in the arts because Thomas Jefferson had one of the finest American architects. Uh, or he was one of the finest American architects. He had his home in Monticello. You had a lot of uh, prominent Americans like Gilbert Stewart who did the portraits of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, as well as James and Dolly Madison. And then you had John Trimble, which was one of the greatest history painters of his generation. <laughs> 